Mark Drake is on a mission to train leaders around the world about the miracle and mystery of Christ living his life in and through all who will believe. Join us on this journey into the heart of the real new covenant and the transforming power of true grace. like to introduce Mark Drake. Thanks, Good Mark. to be home, folks. Really is. Good to see you all. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. The last several weeks, uh, Pastor Josh and I have been going through the book of Ephesians, and it's excellent. It, uh, what, what, we're, what we're covering here, I think, is just first-class material. Last week, we talked about something uh, a bit unique about the grace of God. We talked about why God limits the grace of God in each of us. He does that for a purpose. Does anybody remember what the purpose is? Thank you very much, Josh. He was in the first service. All right. But he, he could tell by your hesitation you were looking back in your notes, and that's all right. The reality is that Jesus, if you are a uh, child of God, if you're a believer, Jesus, by his spirit, lives in you. Now, Jesus, in his resurrected, immortal body, is in heaven with the Father. But his spirit, the spirit that raised from the dead, lives in you if you are a child of God. He lives in you. And he fills you with the abundant life that grace brings us. However... There is one aspect of the grace of God that God does not give you abundantly. And that's the aspect of his grace as it works through us in the area of spiritual giftings and spiritual abilities. But he limits how his grace works through each one of us for a very important reason. Josh already shouted it out. So we would need each other so we would understand that though we get to receive his life directly, the flowing through us of his life is restricted. And the Apostle Paul writes dozens and dozens of verses in his letters repeating the same message that we are on the earth, the body of Christ. Jesus had a body, but when he came out of the grave, that body was made immortal. He ascended back into the heaven, bodily ascended. Some cult groups don't believe that. But the Bible is clear. Over 500 people saw Jesus' body after the resurrection, and they recognized him. And he is at the Father's right hand right now in his body, immortal body, just like you and I are going to have an immortal body. But his spirit lives in us. But when he went back to the Father, he became the head over a new body. Now, I will just tell you my perspective. You don't have to agree with this. But when Jesus said, when I leave here, greater works than I've done will you do. Personally, I don't think he was talking about one of us individually, because I've read a lot and I've never heard of anybody that's done what Jesus did all by themselves. But what Jesus understood was that when he leaves or when he left us, he became the head of a new body. And now instead of having one body of Christ that was geographically located in and around Jerusalem on the other side of the world, now there are millions and millions 
of the members of his body all around the world. So Paul labors this to say, the eye must never say to the ear, I don't need you. So God limits the work of grace through us. And we talked about that. We saw it firmly, I hope, in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4. But there's more in Ephesians 4 that we need to get a hold of. So let's begin in verse 1, Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 1. As a prisoner of the Lord, prisoner for the Lord, Paul was in prison in Rome at this time. He never survived the experience. He was finally let go very shortly and then arrested again and then killed by Nero. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Boy, that's a mouthful right there, isn't it? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And this is an awesome description of grace, who is over all, through all, and in all. That's what God is to us and all of creation. He is over all, through all, and in all. Now, Paul, in the beginning of this part of his letter, of course, you understand that when these letters were originally written, they were not written in chapter and verse. Actually, chapters and verses began to be added to the biblical text somewhere around the 1200 A.D., 1300 A.D., uh, over a thousand years after these letters were all written. And they do help us because I can say go to Ephesians 4.1 and you know exactly where to go. They can hurt us if we stop reading at the end of a verse or at the end of a chapter because many times the thought goes on and for us to see context, we have to read what comes before and what goes after. But in this portion of Paul's letter, he begins to give commandments to the believers in Ephesus about how they are to live. And you say, wait a minute, Mark, I've heard you and Josh and others teach an awful lot that we're not supposed to be under the law. And that's absolutely right. However, we must give definition. If we do not define things correctly, then we're not going to understand them. We're not going to be able to experience the reality of them. When Paul makes the argument that we are not under the law, but we are under grace, he is talking about taking any law, any commandment, anything, and fixing in our minds that we must first do this thing right, and then God will love us. Paul says, thinking about laws or commandments like that, that if you do them and do them well enough, then you earn rightness with God is a lie. But the truth of the new covenant is that through the finished work of Jesus on the cross, he has already made you right with the father. If, if you put your faith in him, received him, his spirits living inside of you. But the new Testament is filled with do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. So how do we look at the commandments? And that's certainly what they are. In the new covenant. Well, we have to understand them the way they're given to us in the new covenant. So when we read things like, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. We already should know that Paul is not saying God is mad at you. 
But if you will start loving people and be humble, God will stop being mad at you. If we've read Paul's writings other places, we know that's not true. So whenever we read commandment portions in the New Testament, and there are lots of them about how we should be living, what we want to see in that is a promise, not a threat. God's promise to us is that if we will put our faith in Him living in and through us, then we can ask Him to work humility in us, and He will. We can ask Him to work a forgiving heart in us, and He will. What happens is we read this and we say, uh, we read this and we don't say, Oh God, I'm not, I'm not being uh, worthy of you. I'm not being humble. I'm not being a judge. What a worm I am. Oh God, is there any way possible you could please that? That's not what the Father wants from you. What the Father wants from you and I is to read these things and say, you know what, the reality is I am not humbling myself to the people around me. Lord Jesus, I take responsibility for that. But I am encouraged that you say right here that if I will put my faith in you, your spirit will do something in me so I can do and I can be what the Word of God says that I am empowered to be and to do. So when we read a commandment, whether it's from Jesus, whether it's from the apostolic writers, there are two things that we must always remind ourselves before we begin to cooperate with the devil and beat ourselves up when we are not all we're supposed to do. And by the way, when you start looking in the mirror and see yourself as a really miserable Christian, you are cooperating with the devil. I know you don't mean to, but you are. The reality is that we should look in the mirror of God's Word, see what He has promised He will do in us if we will believe, and then ask Him to do that. So, let's take, go to slide two. There are two things that we must focus on any time we read the Scripture, and the Scriptures that we read contain commandments. There are two things we must be vividly aware of. Number one, if I'm going to read where Paul says, live a life worthy of the calling you have received, I must begin with what the finished work of Christ has already done for me. If I do not do that, then I will try to make something happen for the wrong reason, the wrong motive. If I'm going to try to live a life worthy so God will love me, I'm telling God he doesn't love me yet, and that's a lie. That's a lie. So the reason the law, quote, unquote, the law is so destructive is that the enemy of our soul uses the law to say, unless you're doing everything right, God is not happy. He is mad at you. That's a lie. So I must always begin with, this is what Jesus has already done before I ever came on the scene. I love where David says, oh God, before there was ever a day lived of my life, you already knew them all. Before there was ever a word formed in my mouth, you already knew it all. You live above and beyond time. You see my whole life from beginning to end. I love that because I can see that in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, God already saw me. The good, bad, and the ugly. He already saw all of that. And he made provision for me to be made right. I am fully forgiven already. I'm fully made righteous. I have peace made with God by the offering of Jesus on the cross. I've been made a new creature. I am empowered from within by the spirit of grace. Whenever I read this and it says, be completely humble, I have a dilemma. 
and I would rather that my wife not participate in this particular moment for just a minute. But humility is not my natural position. <clears throat> Terry has been talking to my wife. Now, uh, <clears throat> see, when I read this, I say, God, the power of your grace is going to have to do a miracle in me because I, I know my normal default position is not humility. And unless the Spirit of Christ works some good work in me, I am not going to be hum completely humble in my life toward other people. And humility, by the way, is always walked out in relation to other people. When you humble yourself to the Lord, you do that by the way you humble yourself to people around you. Oh, it's really easy for me to humble myself to the Lord because he ain't here. But you're here and I got to work every day with you. See, that's how God works. Out. Of course, he's here by his presence. But you understand what I'm talking about. But, but, but when we look at that, we begin with this. We say, God, you want to work humility in me. And when I do not walk in humility, I sin. So I take responsibility for that. I don't grovel, beg, and plead. The Apostle Paul writes and he says, Godly sorrow is a healthy thing. Godly sorrow, he says, does not lead to fear, shame, or condemnation. It leads us to rightly relating to God. Well, when I look at times when I act out of pride and not humility, if I want to be changed by the spirit of grace in me, I have to acknowledge that that's my fault. It's not anybody else's. I don't beg and plead, grovel like a worm and think, oh, I don't know if, if I've done enough good things for God to forgive me. I don't do that because I start with number one. I firmly get in my mind what Jesus has already done for me. And rather than in some crazy way trying to take advantage of that, this becomes really good news to me. That when I'm acting out of humor, not humble, but in my pride, there is hope for me because the spirit of grace is working in me. So I take responsibility for that, not in fear, shame or condemnation, but in simple truth. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So I just acknowledge the truth, but I acknowledge the truth that God out of his great love for me has already paid for this. And number two, I must preface every command with these two promises Jesus gave us. Now, let's look at them. John 14, and we'll have it up here for you to save some time. John 14, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will tell you that this one single verse has probably caused me more shame, fear, and condemnation, and has become the greatest source of liberty and life-changing reality in my life. It has been both of those things. For many, many years, I would read a verse like this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in my mind or in my emotions, because of the twisted way I saw God, I would read that as a commandment. When in fact, this is a promise. Nice to read this. And in my mind, I would think Jesus said, now, if you love me, you better keep my commandments. Of course, I've just twisted the truth of God. And I've tried to make it sound like it's saying, if you keep my commandments, that shows that you love me. That's not what this is saying. Sometimes I read this and I looked at it as if it said, if you love me, then you better keep my commandments. 
Now it's a threat. But in fact, Jesus is making a promise. This is cause and effect. The cause is love me. The effect it will produce is a growing ability from within to obey him. You say, now, Mark, that sounds nice, but how can you just make that up? Well, I'm trying not to make up anything. I'm trying to take this in context. Here's the context. Look at the very next line. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Now, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments and I'm going to give you a helper. A helper to do what? Keep his commandments. And where is the helper going to live? Well, let's go on. That he may be with you forever. All oh, forever, forever. In the Old Testament, come and go, come and go. The anointing was there, then it wasn't. But not in the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, he comes to stay. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad he comes to stay? He comes to stay. God is never distant with you. We may bend our own thinking to feel that way, but that's not God doing that. We're doing that. That he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you, old covenant, with you. But he will be what? In you. If you love me, you will keep my commandments because I'm going to put the helper in you and he will be in you forever. That is the promise of the new covenant in God. That's what grace is all about. Grace is not. God loves me, so I can live any old way I want to live. That's stupid. That's a, that's a Greek word. And oddly enough, it means stupid. It's also a Hebrew word. And oddly enough, it means stupid. Proverbs 12.1. He who loves knowledge, or he who loves discipline loves life. But he who hates correction is stupid. New International and New American Standard both translate that. He's stupid. Just go ahead, put your hands up. That's me. I'm stupid. Because more often than not, I don't like to be corrected. Come on, tell the truth. You bunch of liars. Man. At least Dick's daughter was in the first service and she was telling the truth. Good genes. Happy birthday, my friend. All right, now listen, let's look at this, all right? Again, let's go to the next one, please. Every time we see commandments in the new covenant, before we try to do them, we must remind ourselves of things like Jesus said here. These things I've spoken to you while abiding with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Now, I'm so deeply grateful for the written word of God. God did indeed inspire men, holy men, in whom he was living. And he indeed in, in, in empowered them and inspired them to write what we have today as the written word of God. But I am so grateful that the living word of God is living inside of those of us who have been born of God. And the living Word of God will help take the written Word of God and make it alive in me, changing me from the inside out. So when I read something like, live a life worthy of the calling you've received from the Lord, 
I do not look in the mirror and try to do that myself. But instead, I look in the mirror of the Word to see what Jesus has promised. Say, Lord, I want to live a life that's worthy of you. But I understand that by my own human effort, I cannot. So I am looking to the Spirit in me to help me, to teach me, and to bring to remembrance. Man, the older I get, the more I need the Holy Ghost to bring to my remembrance. Let's go to slide five, please. John 15. We must always, listen, this, this has so radically set me free personally. And I do this on a daily basis, sometimes several times a day. But I preface anything in the Scripture that comes to me as a commandment. And by the way, the commandments of the Lord, the New Testament, New Covenant says, are not burdensome, but they're good for me. They're not good for God. They're good for me. So when I read His commandments, I always preface it with this right here. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. You see, every time you read a commandment in the Scripture, stop right there and say, I can't do this on my own. I cannot bear this fruit of myself. It's not possible. God doesn't expect me to. What He expects the branch to do is to keep drawing life from the vine. So Jesus goes on, unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Every time you read a commandment in the Scripture, preface it with, apart from Him working in me, I cannot do this. I have a responsibility to confess my inability, but I also have a responsibility to put my faith in the ability of the One who is living in me. You see, occasionally when people hear teaching about grace, they walk away and they say, well, based on what I heard, that's really cool. I guess I don't have to do anything. Oh, yes, you do. And let me tell you something. It's a whole lot easier, the way I've experienced, it's a whole lot easier if I gave you a list of rules and you could start grunting and groaning to try to get them and check them off as you do. We've got a bigger battle. It's a battle of faith. Every day we have to choose to believe that Christ by His Spirit is literally living inside of us. And Peter describes it by saying, fix your mind for battle. Gird up yourself with strength. There is a battle. But that battle is not out of human effort. How good can you be? That battle is, will you believe that there is a miracle going on inside of you? Oh, I'm thrilled to know that I can become a Muslim if I memorize the laws of the Koran, I can convert to Judaism. If I memorize the law of Moses and join a synagogue, I can join the Buddhists. If I will learn the eightfold path to take me to Nirvana. But you can't join Christianity. Biblical Christianity, you cannot join. You can only get in with a miracle. You don't get in any other way. You can look like one. And when people are watching, you can act like one. But that doesn't make you one. Only a miracle makes you one. The miracle of the new birth. And that's only the beginning of the miracle. Oh, I was hoping for a better response than that. But man, oh man, oh man, this is my life. I love it. Oh, glory be to God. <laughs> Apart from me, you can do nothing. Every time you read a Bible verse, 
that tells you to do something. Preface it with, now, Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing. I realize that. But at the same time, I also realize your promise is you are working in me. Uh, Philippians 1, 6, I'm confident of this one thing, that he who began this good work in you, he will complete it to the day of his appearing. That's where our confidence lies. Now, Paul labors in his letters to these churches to remind them that the grace of God that works through us is divided up amongst us. Peter says we must learn to be good stewards of the manifold, meaning many-faceted, grace of God. Both of these writers, when they're talking this way, are talking not about the abundant life Jesus gives us. We all share in that uh, because He lives in us by His Spirit. But the way He works through us to others, He does limit. He limits the eye, so the eye will appreciate the ear. He limits the feet, so they will appreciate the hands. He has limited each of us so that we will appreciate one another. And by the way, I'm just going to throw this in really quick just to kind of give you something to chew on during the week. We just took communion. And I frequently get asked by people, you know, I hear what you're teaching, but when it comes to communion, it always scares me because I'm not sure if I'm drinking worthy or unworthily. You know, Paul does give a very severe warning in 1 Corinthians 11 and says, if you come to the table of the Lord unworthy, because of that, there are many who are sick among you and some have died prematurely. Oh, my gosh, what is that about? If you will read the context, it's real simple. He starts out by saying, I have heard that when you all come together to eat the Lord's Supper, you all are so selfish, you only think about yourself, you stuff yourself with food and you leave and others are left at the meeting with nothing to eat. You do not discern the Lord's body. Are you there? You're not talking about his body in heaven. He's talking about his body. Now, why would that be? Oh, let me give you just a real simple example. I come to communion and I'd like to be healed of something. But the gift of healing is in my brother right here. What's your first name? Corey. Corey. The gift of healing has been put in Corey by the Holy Spirit. He's divided that into him. I don't like Corey. <laughs> he just rubs me the wrong way. Sorry. If he'd straighten up, you know what I've just done? I have just put a tourniquet on the body of Christ between me and Corey and what Jesus would like to flow through him to me that I might receive healing because I don't appreciate a part of the Lord's body. I miss what God wants to do. Are you there? Chew on that. Read 1 Corinthians 11. Corey, you are a wonderful man. Really. Love you. you pray for me after the meeting. All right, okay, all right. All right, all right let's wrap this up. Let's go to, uh, give me uh, uh, slide uh, uh, eight, please. Sorry, slide eight. Ephesians 4, 17. You can read the whole chapter. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. This is strong language. That you must no longer live as Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. 
having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. And other translations say with an ever-growing selfishness or self-focus. I want to close today by making this statement. It is important. I trust you write it down. We'll chew on it together in the coming months. Sin matters. It does. I am an absolute 100% believer in the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus for the sins of all mankind. And it's applicable to any of us who will believe. I believe. So I do not have any fear or terror that somehow I'm going to lose my salvation. I understand that the penalty for all of eternity was paid by Jesus. And it becomes ours by faith in his sacrifice. But I also understand in reading the New Testament that although I have no fear of some eternal separation from God, I am very concerned about the in-this-life reactions to sin if I indulge it. Sin does matter to the believer, at least it darn well better. Because sin is destructive. And if we understand the symptoms, then we can allow the Holy Spirit to do something in us on a regular basis. But this is what sin does in the life of a believer if we indulge it and refuse to take responsibility for it. Number one, it darkens our thinking. If we indulge in sin as a child of God, it's not going to send you to hell tomorrow, but it will start messing with your mind. And I have said far too many times with with leaders who ended up committing adultery or some terrible immoral sin, got exposed, hurt lots of people, and then had that person say to me, I can't believe I would have ever given in to that. I can't believe the way I was thinking. I was I never thought that way before. No, you didn't. But you kept indulging things that you know you should have asked God to strengthen you to say no to. And the more you indulged in it, the darker your thinking became. Are you there? Still a child of God. But losing the ability to see clearly. Number two, it hardens our heart. Now, this is the human condition that sin not dealt with, not acknowledged. Sin will harden our hearts. And Paul gives a whole teaching about what happened to Israel. They were God's people, but their hearts got harder and harder and harder because they indulged things that God would have helped them with. See, again, we're not falling back to, oh, boy, you better clean up your act or God's really going to be ticked. That's not what we're talking about. We're saying you need to go to the great physician and get a little antibiotic. And every time we interact with Him, every time we feed on His Word, and we look at Him and say, I believe what you did on the cross, but I also believe in the present work of the Spirit in me now, and I take full responsibility for that, empower me on the inside to say no to it, then our hearts, then our hearts get soft. But the longer we play around with it, the more we get... And number three, he says, we lose sensitivity. In First 
Uh, Timothy 4, 2, Paul writes to his spiritual son and he says about some teachers that were teaching error. He says, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. How many know that feeling? You burn your fingertip and for the next several weeks you can't feel anything. Doesn't mean you're going to hell. But it does mean that you're losing sensitivity. It's not because God's mad and he's backing off. It's because you, I, am losing sensitivity. Well, what is the answer? Well, the answer is stay soft. Go to the last slide, please. Stay soft. I want to give you three things that will be the answer for us. Stay soft. You know how you stay soft? Take the blame. Take the blame. I said with a pastor whose marriage had fallen apart and he said, well, I'm I'm willing to take the blame, but I don't want to take the blame for something that I'm not to blame for. And I said, well, that sounds really good. The only problem is you're so self-defensive. What makes you think you can actually discern how much blame you should carry? And he said, well, then what should I do? And I said, well, I'm going to tell you, but I don't think you're going to be willing to do it. He said, well, at least tell me. I said, well, OK, I'll tell you. Take it all. Take it all. And then God will work it out in your relationship with your wife. If you will just take it all. And he said, well, I can't do that. So, my friend, that's exactly what Jesus did for you. He took all the blame for your sin. None of it was his. But he did it so we could experience redemption. God has intervened in our marriage far more than once and brought redemption and healing to Linda and I's relationship over the past 43 years so many times because each of us were willing to just take the whole blame. That's when God can work in our lives. Number two, be a quicker confessor. Take the blame, take it quick. Take it if it's not yours to take. The people that are around you and love you, they'll, they'll, they'll sort it out. God, by His Spirit, He'll sort it out. But learn to be a quicker confessor. Don't make the Holy Spirit wrestle you down to the ground by a lot of junk going on in your life that you don't need going on because He's trying to get your attention so you'll cry, Uncle. Is that You, you know what? You young people don't even know what that means. We don't do that anymore, do we? I'm sorry. Let me put it in WWF. Till you tap out. I give. I give. Be a quicker confessor. In fact, you and I would be far better off if we took the blame for stuff that's ultimately not our blame. But we're doing it because we realize we do not see ourselves objectively. But we can trust God. And lastly, keep renewing and washing your mind with the reality of the Scriptures of what Christ has already done for you and what He is doing right now in you. Would you stand with me, please? Father, we are overwhelmed with your faithfulness to us when we are so unfaithful. Or it's hard for us sometimes to even wrap our brains around Paul saying to Timothy, Timothy, our confidence is that God remains faithful even when we are unfaithful because he cannot change or deny what he is who He is, how He feels about us. Lord, You know our hearts. Given a chance, we might try 
to somehow think we could take advantage of that. But the truth about us is you've made us new creations. And our hearts want to follow after you. I pray for us right now, Lord, would you lovingly put your finger on something that we need to get softened up about? Would you lovingly shine your light on something that we've been blaming others for, but now we need to quickly confess that it's me, it's not anybody else? And would you this coming week cause the living Word of God to take the written Word of God washing our minds, renewing our thought processes so we are ever mindful of what you've done on the cross and what the Spirit of grace is doing in us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, folks, have a great week and ask the Lord to cause somebody to cross your path that you can reach out to and sow a little seed into of the good news. Join us on this new covenant journey at markdrake.org.